At some time during the night, they became aware of their mother's sobs and of Bridget coughing and trying to breathe. Michael came and lay down in the bed beside the girls. They held hands and prayed, every prayer they had ever learned. God help us, please help us, God, they whispered. No one slept. It was the early hours of the morning before the coughing stopped. Then there was a sudden silence. Mother was kissing the baby's face and each little finger one by one. God, let the sun come up soon and let this terrible night end, the children begged. Suddenly they became aware of their mother's silence. They got up and went over to her. Large tears slid down her cheeks. She's gone. My own little darling is gone. We are standing in the townsland of Gurtagani, in the parish of Loch Lynn, in West Roscommon. Gurtagani, or Gurtnaganeve Tregelge, means the field of sand. And to get the real meaning of that, you have to look around the area we are standing in, and you will note that we are surrounded by bogland. And this particular place, the field of sand, stands out like an oasis in all of the bogland. I would say it is probably a nesker left from the Ice Age, from the glaciers that moved at that time. And this area of sand is the highest point in West Roscommon, or maybe in all of Roscommon. And from here, you can see many things um, around the, around, uh, the area. Uh, you're supposed to be able to see seven spires of churches uh, from this point. But certainly, on a clear day, looking to the west, you can see Croke Patrick standing majestically. And to the northwest, you can see the mountain of Nathan in North Mayo, standing not as majestically as Croke Patrick, but in that rounded, massive hump of rock that Nathan is. As a child, this particular area has special memories for me. Just be careful crossing the fence there, John. Um, I remember when rural electrification came to the area. Uh, the, t the electricity poles were put up and the wires and so on were put in place and shortly afterwards I was playing around here when I noticed something extraordinary. Myself and Holly McNulty, my next door neighbour. Uh, one of the wires from the electrical poles had fallen and was resting on a strand of barbed wire that ran the whole length of that particular fence over there, running from one end of the townsland right up to the top of the hill and, and, and beyond. And the extraordinary thing was that because, and we didn't realise this at the time, because the strand of barbed wire was electrified, each wooden stake that held the barbed wire all along had taken fire. And each stake, I'm sure there must have been hundreds of them, all the way up the fence were smoking and flames coming from them. And of course, we watched this in awe. I ran down to my father and told him what had happened. He went to the post office and called Balahadreen and the uh, ESB came out and repaired the thing. But it is a vivid memory for me looking at that fence. <sighs> the, field, the field that we've now come into uh, has a, a particular memory. I remember uh, picking potatoes and pitting them 
just along here as, as, as we move along. And um, the particular thing I remember about this field was that uh, the corner of it where we're just approaching um, was not tilled and was never used. And Michael McNulty, my next-door neighbour, explained to me at that time that that particular corner had special significance, uh, that it was a place of reverence and that we shouldn't go in and desecrate the ground in any way because it was a children's burial ground, probably going back to famine times and uh, certainly not used uh, at that time when I was growing up, but was, was in use uh, some years before. Tony McNulty, what do you know about the graveyard here behind us? Well, as far as I can remember from my father, that was no that children's grave, graveyard. They called it Caldera. And a lot of children buried there. But the last one was about 40 to 45 years ago. Now, they were belonged to the people that owned the land, relations. And there was a big tree in the middle of the graveyard and the old woman was afraid that people had cut her down. But we never took much notice of the old people when they were on about owning things that happened. We wouldn't listen to them. But now that they're gone, we can... We don't... We haven't enough of their history. Why was you worried about that the tree would be cut down? Well, it was in case they'd get haunted and uh, the people had... Something had happened to people that gave them permission and they owned the land and they thought they'd die and because it was some t a big tree that was in the middle of the graveyard and they were just beyond about haunting and ghosts and different things at the time. Was there, was there a respect for people, for the graveyard itself, among the ordinary people around here? Oh, great respect for it. Great respect. All kids, children were buried there up to about 40 years ago. But nothing, none has been buried in it since. Would, how many people would have been buried, would you say? Oh, I'm sure there must be... What I could remember, there was... All young kids were buried in it, and there could be maybe 100 or 200 kids going back for maybe 100 years. Was there a name for this field? Well, I don't think that there was any particular name for the field, but we always referred to the corner here where the burial ground is actually situated as Calvary. And um, any references we had to this place as youngsters, it was referred to as Calvary. And uh, I do know from time to time when... Uh, the Mike McNulty or whoever was working up in this area, um, uh, Holly, his son, would say to his mother if she was wanting to know where, where, where Mike was, he was in the field beside Calvary or he was in the field that, uh, where Calvary is situated or the field beyond Calvary. And uh, uh, that is the only name we had for it. Um, and perhaps that name was put on it when they opened the gravesite in 
1847 or thereabouts and uh, refer to it as Calvary from then on. Did people talk much about the, the graveyard or about the famine? No, I never heard anybody uh, talking very much about it. Um, certainly not the famine. It, it was passed by uh, the older people who were in the area that I knew uh, would not have been born at the time of the famine and um, there wasn't very much talk about it at all except on that one occasion as I tried to help out here picking the spuds and fill the buckets with the cold hands on a November day and walk down and tumble them into the to the pit where they were going to be uh, uh, covered over for the winter. Uh, on that day when I heard about this place first, uh, it was said it was a famine burial ground and that it began at that time and I suppose that was the only reference to the famine times in relation to this graveyard. It sounds as if though people were trying to block the whole thing out of their minds. I would say that that's a, a, a fair point. Certainly uh, from the time of the famine and, and immediately afterwards that it was such a traumatic experience for everyone, not alone for the massive numbers of people who died, but also the massive number of people who left the area and left Ireland, that it was such a traumatic experience in so many ways that perhaps if they could put the whole thing behind them uh, and look towards a new f future things would be better and I think that's understandable uh, and then uh, such uh, graveyards or such uh, monuments to that time that were that were here as as is as this particular one uh, was was put out of people's minds and they didn't think about it or they didn't do anything to remind them of that particular time and didn't put a cross or uh, a statue or anything in the area just left it as it was respected the area and hoped that that sort of time would not come again Do you know anybody who was actually buried there yourself? I did, I knew a few. There was a brother of mine buried there in 1912. He'd be 10 months old. And there was a sister a year or two before that. I'd say she was still born. And I remember a, a child being buried oh, during the war, far in the 40s. A, a child called Flynn from the village. And he'd be a year. And I, I knew I wasn't here at the time, but I knew of a Tinker's child being buried there. So that's it. Ah, oh, it was a regular thing. It was a regular thing. They used to let children die. I was digging a grave there for a neighbour. Another bloke with me, like. So I asked her, like, we always asked him questions. Can we take up the remains that's down there? Or how many years were, is the, or were the remains buried there? And she told me that. That uh, her sister was buried there at the age of 16. That would go back about 35 to 40, maybe 35 years anyway, you know. But I said, can we lift the remains? And she said, if it's down deep enough, don't do it. And I asked her, was there any more buried than that grave? And she said, no. But we tackled the job anyways and took it on. And as we went down about two feet there and just one into the grave, we got the remains of a child. 
The child, I'd say, would be myself, to suppose, about oh, a newborn baby. That's all you could make up. The head like the little head wasn't big as that thing there. But I asked her about that when everything was all over. And she said, no, nobody belonging to her was there, only her sister in that grave. And that's all we could make out of it. Couldn't, she couldn't remember anything else. See? So that's that. So people just... Um... I think people will say, if I had it, you know, if I go back again, if there was children born in the house like it, child now like that, well, the first thing they do is put it into a little cotton or a box and bring it to the nearest graveyard, like what they call it. These graves are blessed, aren't they? That's it. That's what I think about it. That's what I do here mostly. Peggy started to cry. I want Bridget back, she wailed. I want her. It's all right, pet assured mother she was too weak to stay in this hard world any longer look at her isn't she a grand little girl now that she's at rest the baby lay still as if she were just dozing mother told them to kiss her and one by one they kissed the soft cheek and forehead of Bridget the little sister they hardly knew mother seemed strangely calm and made them go back to bed at first light Michael you must run to Dan Collins and ask him to get Father Doyle. I'll just sit and mind my darling girl for a little while yet. Later, Michael set off, his face pale and his eyes red-rimmed. The chill of the early morning made him shiver as he pulled his light jacket around him. Mother had heated some water, and with a cloth she gently washed Bridget and brushed and brushed the soft blonde curls. Eilie pulled the old wooden chest from under Mother's and Father's bed. As instructed, she opened it. There wasn't that much in it, so she soon found the lace christening robe which her great-grandmother had made. The lace was yellow and old. It was only ten months since Bridget had worn the robe before, but her little body was so thin and wasted it still fitted her. Dressed in it, she looked like a little pale angel, though Eilie couldn't help but remember a porcelain French doll she had seen in a shop window in the town once. It stood stiff in a white lace dress with a starched petticoat and long curling real hair. How she had wanted to hold and have that doll. Now she felt the same longing, but much worse. She ached to hold Bridget and never let her go. Um, the significant thing about this corner of the field is that it has a couple of very mature uh, hawthorn bushes with the, the, the famous red berries uh, all over the place. And I think that was a, a significant uh, thing about famine graveyards. Um, the only way you'd know that perhaps children had been buried here or that there were graves here is that there are quite a lot of stones in the corner, probably uh, marking out the actual graves from days gone by and maybe disturbed with time with cattle walking in over over the area um, and the changes in the in in the ground with the rain and so on in the interim uh, the other thing is that it's covered I suppose with briars and ferns in the winter time brown and dead and 
uh, lying, I suppose, pushed down to the ground by the rain. Uh, in the summertime, green and strong and much more growth in the area. But uh, I suppose, above all, a very peaceful spot. Almost no sound at all coming uh, from anywhere around us at the pre- present time, except perhaps the chirping of the birds and a small little robin just coming by us now as a, what is he, six feet away, bobbing, bobbing around and not moving at all. At that time, the the church didn't allow uh, stillborn babies to be buried in consecrated grounds. I, I couldn't be sure whether they didn't allow or was it just that, you know, there's a lot of things that has changed, all right, with the church and with with people themselves. It may not be the church, but it would be the people's own thinking or something, you know, and too. I'd say people has a lot of broader mind about these things now and that, you know, a lot of it is anyway, they bury them in their own family plot now and, you know, if it's nothing else, it's a bit of dignity like to the mother and, you know, to, you know, you know, it will be, to be easier for her to forget the trauma, but... What, what kind of ceremony would they had when the child was buried, would you know? Well, no, no, I wouldn't know. Like, I don't know really. I think they used to that be a, a sort of a wake and, you know, the close relations and neighbours and all that would be in and be plenty of lamentation. And I I heard of a few cases and we'll say the white coffin would be there and the child laid out on it and the grandfather or some uncles, you know, someone would walk in at at a time and they'd put on maybe the undertaker or, or you know yeah. and uh, laid the coffin and they'd leave it there a while and let things settle and then the uncle would take it or you know some one of them rather than the parents and take it away out and the crowd followed them and you know like they were more sensitive that time than even now and then you see the religion was biting at them a bit, especially if it was a thing that, you know, that the child wasn't on the hands of God, like one who had not been baptised on this. Would people have been ashamed of that kind of thing? I thought they wouldn't be ashamed, like, but uh, a soul lost, you know. Like, I'd say, and there was plenty of mortality at the time. You know, they weren't well up in medical or people weren't as... I'd say they're equipped everywhere better now. Well, I did. I, I remember my grandmother talking about like that, do you see, 
when you're 12 or 14, you couldn't care less. But she remembered the famine. She was born about 1835, she was 92 when she died. And she was a walking history book if, if we had the cop on to listen to her, you know. But she remembered children and their mother coming along walking, looking for a bit to eat, and they were looking for it from somebody who had nothing either. And she said they pulled the watercress out of the, the drains and boiled it and ate it. But a funny thing about it, I got a, got a look at a book, I think it's Griffith's Valuation, and it dealt from 1845 onwards. And the population of Cloonkan at that time was 350 people. Today there's about 45, and a lot of them are old-age pensioners. I heard a story about a man, and he went up to the whoever was in charge. He said, uh, "What's the cheapest fare?" He says to Liverpool. He said, "A pig." It was a shilling for a pig. Well, he said, "Book me as a pig." He said, <laughs> "You have to go in and sh stand with the pigs." Do you see? <laughs> and I say, "Since the smell wouldn't want to be too good." <laughs> and they walked in. When they got across, when they got across the well, they were into Lancashire then. Worked from that into North Yorkshire and down to Lincolnshire. You know, Lancashire, I believe, was hay and fern country, Havish. Havish was down in, Link in Lincolnshire and Cambridge. But you'd hear old men, you'd hear them talking at night, you know, been 70 or 80 years of age. And it was, it was great to hear them, you know, what they used to do. They used to sleep, sleep in an outbuilding, sacks over them. And that was up till November when they'd come home. There wasn't much civil rights. There must have been a lot of disease, though, when people were hungry. Well, there was, and I suppose it was probably the, but bad feeding and bad house and very unhygienic uh, TB played away at that time. Because there'd be four or five houses, you know, in one little cluster. And the, the dung pit would be maybe between two of them. Small windows then. If they put a big window, if they pulled out, knocked out the window, put in a big window, the landlord raised the rent. And that was it. Small windows, poor conditions, and then the potatoes, the potato was... And if they, if they raised any corn, it had to go, of course, uh, pay the rent. And if the potatoes failed, it was their hard luck, that was it. When I was in school, we heard these terrible stories about landlords and things like that. What kind of landlords did you have around here during the famine times? He wasn't bad, no. Brabson was the landlord here. But... Uh, they weren't bad here. As the man that was in Lachlan, I think he was dealing, they weren't bad. But further over now, Midrash Common, they were bad. There was supposed to be a fella that came to evict a woman near Castle Plunker now, and she was a widow, she had a few children. And she was boiling a part of yellow meal Christmas night. And he brought his men to shift her out. And she begged him to let her cook the meal. And he took the pot himself and threw it out on the, the street. His men wouldn't, wouldn't do it. 
and it was said after that he used to appear with the red hot tongues round his neck. As we look around, you know, there are many changes taking place uh, since I grew up here. And the bogland now, much of it is gone and plantations have uh, replaced or covered the bogland and there's wonderful mature uh, forests coming up. But you do see out there uh, the purple heather and that of course comes to the, brings me to, to remember the poem, the purple heather is the cloak God gave the bogland brown. But man has made a pall of smoke to hide the distant town. That that purple heather is disappearing quite a bit. But uh, I'm happy with all those changes and the improvements uh, and the forestry. But disappointed with the perhaps the lack of recognition of the graveyard and no no marker down that that it actually exists there or perhaps that it could disappear from the area completely uh, and the generations that are coming up would forget about it completely and not even know it was there. Watch the, your step there in the muck. Loads, loads of muck around here. Where there's muck, there's luck, I suppose. Would you be worried, though, about the future, that really maybe sometime somebody by accident, more so than malice, might just uh, clear that the graveyard away? Yeah, that would be the the main worry, that if, if there wasn't a marker there to indicate that it should be protected and that it would remain as it is, that out of ignorance somebody would just remove the the bushes, uh, push away the stones and till the land, and that would be... Uh, that would be a tragedy, I think. So perhaps we need to get a marker down there to, to protect the whole area completely. You mentioned there, PJ, that the old people had great memory and they kept the thing alive. Now that the old people are, are, are dying off, are there people around to to remember those graves? Land, you see, this is is a good thing and a bad thing, but it's uh, the real eyes now more on the the notebook and the, you know what's wrote down. But at that time, they had to keep thinking of it because a lot of them mightn't understand it if they seen it wrote down itself. But but they had their gifts. They didn't. They had their own talent. Would you think many people in the in the parish of uh, of Gorthigani itself would know about the children's graveyard? How many people would know where it is? Well, there isn't that, uh, that many now. But there, like any though, like with say Pat Morris down here, you know. But uh, I'd say myself, I've been nearly as old myself as any of them now. That would. Would know, you know, maybe him and Quinn know, you know, Tony, you know, that, that sort of way. Because I'd say the young ones, you know, there's less and less talked about this. No one, now Mrs Nestor one time would soon threaten us when we were going to the shop not to go up there. But, like she'd be t- sort of frightening us of fairies and, you know, this. <laughs> <laughs> but I fear we'd take turnips on her or something. <laughs> <laughs>
Why, though, are, do people not tell those stories anymore? Well, you see, the visiting house has gone out and the telly has taken away from that, and young ones don't... You know, it's a different culture to that. There's no, no round-the-fire tales now. And there's no... Really, there was a gift in telling tales. There was the, the man that could tell a story. He'd hold an audience... And you, I remember when I was young hearing the matter, the one would be trying to best the threats at this and going very fair about this. You, you know, it was very barefaced, one telling the other about the, this ghost, the scene. They nearly name him at the finish <laughs> to make one, one making it a bit better than the other. And listening to that was grand. Until you'd be going to bed. You'd be afraid to go from the fire up in the room to go to bed <laughs> after it. But it, it had its own enjoyment, but the young ones don't hear it now. There's no one able to tell them, as they used to say, with the British skin on it. No. What do you. Are you happy to see graves restored or looked after? Oh, yes. Uh, yeah, I, I reckon this is. It's. it's Oh, like heritage, our heritage, anyway, and it's, along with that, it's, like it's done, it is like if you were away somewhere, it's like a mass at the anniversary or anything else. If you were away somewhere and your parents or grandparents alive at around this time of year, wouldn't you think you weren't worth the salt if you didn't send them a mass card? or a, a Christmas card or something and it's the same way about a mess or you know for, I, I believe that uh, it's one way of keeping the remembrance of of the past and like you have to when you remember the past and these people that no doubt was loved by you know everyone had their own loved ones and damage is grand too to give them as much dignity as you can, even though they're not with us anymore. There were a lot of, there are a lot of stories told about these graveyards and um, fairies being near them. I believe you heard a story yourself about or know of a story where this can... I heard it and I seen it, if that's the right word for it, but uh, I'll tell you I, I never liked it, I seen it night after night myself as I was passing the road but lucky enough that the graveyard was about 500 yards in from the main road in in uh, a big estate belonging to the Blakes this now is an uh, an estate Nana Down Galway, you know so uh, I had occasion to pass that road maybe two or three nights a week, you see. But any time at all, from nine o'clock on until the dawn or four o'clock in the morning, that was there, about five feet, we'd say, from the ground, you know. But before that light had come on to that graveyard, you see, the local people about two miles away along a river... They'd see that light coming along at that about five feet, we'll say, over the river all the time until it land there in that graveyard, and it must be there for about five years, and nobody knew what was the origin or what about it, or no one knew when it went, what happened. So that's how I, 
I seen uh, that light nights up and nights. And as you were coming along that road, you'd always think you would, I wonder will the light be in the graveyard tonight? And it, I just looked the other way because I tell you I was a bit nervous all the time, you know. But no matter how you look, you'd have to bloody look anyway. And by Jez, you'd see this light in spite of you, you know. <laughs> that was it. That's all I could tell you about it. What kind of light was it? Was it a big light, small no, light? No, it wasn't. It wasn't. It was like the light of a Nile lantern. No, that's what it was like. You know, the lanterns yourself. See? And that's all I could tell you about that. When you were growing up in Gurthagani, did you hear much about the children's graves around you? Uh, John, I didn't hear that much about them, but I, I was aware they were there. You know, we were told in school in Gurthagani that there was uh, one up at the back of the school. I never actually knew where it was, and uh, we were told about one in Cloncan as well. And in later times, uh, my father told me about one back at near Calibay Crossroads, and um, I, I, I was working there with the machine some years ago for, for the, the men for the the forces in the field and um, he, he made sure that I wouldn't go near it but I, I am aware of that myself as well that uh, I certainly wouldn't go near those forts or touch them Why was that attitude there that people were so afraid to, to touch the, the graveyards? Well I suppose probably in famine times John a lot of people uh, young, young people were probably better there and they, they hadn't the full history of it and they were anxious that uh, those places would be left there and that's, that's all they knew about it it, it, those people didn't seem to know much of the history about it either, but obviously they'd, they'd heard something from the past about it. I always find it curious that, that people seem to know so little about um, such an important part of, of their history, as if people seem to want it to forget about that the whole thing ever happened. Well, I, I suppose I'm, I'm the same myself, but um, I, I, I never got into the history of it. and I, I, I've heard lots of bits and pieces in the, in the locality, but uh, I, I think it's something that could be explored and it's something that could be looked into. You mentioned earlier, Martin, that you were work as a machine operator. Um, what happens, though, if by accident or by, by design you did actually touch or interfere with such a graveyard? Yeah, well, uh, I'm a machine there for over 20 years now, John, but there was one occasion where, where um, there was a, this fourth in the field and I was working with this local farmer and uh, I, was, I was always very reluctant. I never did touch them. But um, this particular gentleman, I, I had a lot of work done for him, and we were having the dinner in his house. And uh, he said to me, he said, would you, would, you, would you level that area in the field? Now, I knew looking at the area that it was a fourth. It had something to do with history in the past. So I said to him, I'd be very reluctant to do that. But he said, well, I'd be anxious to get it done. So, well, I said, if you want it done, if you take the rap for it, I'll, I'll do it. But I was very reluctant. Now, I levelled the fourth, levelled it out, and done the whole job. And n near the end of it, the machine actually stopped, and it got airlocked, and we found it very hard to get it going. That was one part. But I got it going, and we finished the job. But that night, or I think it was the night afterwards, a relation of his was killed. But whether that had anything to do with it, I don't know. You don't know what your guess seems to be that it might have something to do with it? Yeah, I, I, would, I would be inclined to think that, that it, you know, there could be something there. Thank you. 
You've told us already about all the things we see here in the graveyard. What surprises me most, though, is what we don't actually see. Well, of course, that's right. Um, immediately, you would think of a graveyard. You would uh, want to see an area fenced off, uh, even though it may not be cleaned up, but it would be fenced off and marked. Uh, there's nothing here on the ground to suggest uh, that this is a graveyard. There are no tombstones, no crosses, uh, no uh, major uh, statue or cross that would be a centrepiece to any graveyard. All it is is a, a piece of ground uh, that is probably marked on the old Ordnance Survey mar maps as a children's burial ground, but there is nothing on the ground actually to indicate uh, that this is in fact uh, such a place. It must seem very strange for people though, um, wondering how this situation was allowed to happen, where all these people were just left to apparently just rot and be forgotten about. Well, I've thought about that from time to time and wondered the circumstances of having this particular graveyard here. And when I grew up, there, were, there was no other graveyard uh, in this area. Any of the uh, people who died in this area had to be taken down to the other end of the parish, uh, to Loch Lynn, which is four miles away. Um, I would say that the circumstances that applied at the time and the great difficulty of the famine and the massive amount of loss of life, particularly of the young people. And when you, when you read about the famine and you look on graveyards uh, around the country uh, and pick out from the tombstones the dates and the ages of people who died at that time, you will see that they were quite young. Uh, men and women would be in their 30s perhaps and certainly anybody in their 40s was, was, was of a great age uh, but I would say the fact that there was so much loss of life that perhaps the children were taken to uh, a particular burial ground because so many died and perhaps the adults then were taken to the more formal locations of burial like uh, the cemeteries that are down close to, to, to Loch Lynn in this case but um, that would be the only explanation I would have. I think that uh, for the children, uh, a particular place was sought in the area. And I think that not just here in this particular field in the middle of Garthagene, uh, but in other areas around here, I do know that there are similar such sites uh, where children have been buried and are certainly marked on Ordnance Survey maps. field and went inside. In a few minutes the three adults emerged, Kitty holding mother's arm and Dan carrying the carved wooden chest. A light breeze blew and the blossom bowed and waved in welcome. There was a clear blue sky. A family of blue tits sat on the branch of a tree helping to keep vigil. Dan and Kitty led them in the prayers and they all remember the words of Jesus. Suffer the little children to come unto me. They prayed, too, that they would meet again in paradise. Eileen and Michael gently placed the flowers beside the chest. Peggy clung to Mother as huge sobs racked her body. Mother stroked her hair. They all sang a favourite hymn of Father Doyle's. Then Kitty led them back to the house.
Dermot Early, you've been our guide as we walked, or in my case, stumbled around this graveyard. What emotions do you experience as we walk around here? Well, I think I would have two sets of emotions. The first one would be the memories of magnificent, enjoyable, uh, carefree times as I had as a youngster running wild across these fields and jumping the ditches and hedgerows and having great fun. Uh, the other emotion I would have would be the recalling of the memory I had at the moment I was told that this was a, a children's burial ground in the corner of a, of a field in my area and remembering the most difficult times that the people uh, must have had during and after the famine and the fact that uh, young people were buried here uh, without any marker, without any uh, sign, uh, just brought home to me at that time when I heard it uh, the difficulty uh, that existed, that must have existed then, and uh, they would certainly be the two thoughts that come to mind immediately. Could you sum up what this place means for us in one sentence in the context of Irish history? Well, I suppose that this is the legacy of a horrific time in Irish history, the legacy of an Irish Holocaust.